1-900-HOT-DOG-9000, the podcast of 1-900-HOT-DOG.COM, the best and final website for text and picture jokes. We have new articles every weekday with an all-star cast of writers. We recently hired Michael Swaim and Mike Drucker, two very funny mics. Help us pay them at our Patreon. The only way we make money, patreon.com slash 1-900-HOT-DOG. I'm Enduring Internet Treasure, Sean Baby, and my co-host is Buns Magazine's Mayor of Butt, runner-up to third place, Robert Brockway! I, I don't even care. I'm just too excited about finally getting that two-mic certification. We're finally two-mic <laughs> yeah. certified. There. I'm Robert Brockway. Here's, here's a Brockway fact. Uh, my own con man stepfather once tried to run a dolphin grift on a Stargate SG-1. No follow-up <laughs> I actually know some of that. I don't have any follow-up questions. I know that story. Uh, our guest is here on a whirlwind junket of every podcast to promote his latest book, He's New York Times bestselling author, Jason Pargin. Welcome back. I have unironically uh, appeared on, or I'm about to appear on, 22 episodes of various podcasts or interviews. Uh, I, I hesitate to say that because I don't want you guys to feel like you're not special. Um, mm. But at the same time, if I have like a bag of lozenges here on my desk because my body is so frail that this is a lot of work for me to do. <laughs> well, we appreciate your sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> I think 22 podcasts is about 22 too many. I thought you were going to say of the dog zone. I was like, yeah, it's about right. Yeah. Sounds about right. But I, uh, when this drops, uh, your book will be officially out, I think. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's, uh, it comes out October 31st. So this will, it, it will be out on shelves. Although it, even if you were listening to this like two weeks in advance, bookstores just put it up whenever it comes in they don't care it's not like a movie it's just they yeah. get the boxes and maybe 10 days before the release date they'll just slap them up there like that's it, okay. what difference does it make uh i once had a previous book i'm pretty sure miss out on the bestseller list because a lot of bookstores just put it out a week early so it didn't it didn't count toward the same week because and then some stores will put it out like two weeks later because there's it's not like when a harry, a harry potter book would come out and <laughs> kids would line up at midnight at the bookstore it's like nah we'll get to it we'll get to it when we get to it you're not famous enough for mm -hmm. us to care that much we haven't said the title yet it's uh zoe is too drunk for this dystopia yes uh and i hope i hope you enjoy it although i do have to say i was talking about this earlier i have gotten more fan messages like like loving fan messages sincerely about the big feats podcast than about my, my last book that I'd spent two years writing in, in the entire time it's been out, because it's been out for a year now. We're now, you know, the next book release cycle. I've gotten so many people who have hunted me down, like on Instagram messages, which nobody messages me on Instagram. Like, hey, I just wanted to thank you for big feats. <laughs> you have clearly made some kind of wish to like have your legacy last forever, but you forgot to be very specific. Yeah. And you got one of those dickhead genies. It's just like TikTok legend Jason Pargin. <laughs> Big feet's legend Jason Pargin. Bigfoot hunter expert. Some, somewhere I like 50 years from now, there'll be a tombstone of mine, and the tombstone the design be like two big Sasquatch feet. Like my name is like also also wrote books on the side, but be beloved Big Feet's lost to time, of course. Considered lost media now. Mostly known for his commentary on a lost show called Mountain Monsters, copies of which also do not exist. Stunning commentary. Insightful. Has really changed the face of philosophy with his show, Big Feats. Season two of that show. 
The unkillable like, wild bill will speak at all of our funerals. And we will be honored. Um, today we're talking about the dark and unintended comedy, hiding in otherwise serious movies. All three of us have brought an example that we want to talk about. I brought two. You brought two. God I damn. brought two. I Overachiever. I was going to say it was going to be a loose mess around day because I want Jason to have a nice time off from, you know. Oh, it still is. They're not good. Oh, excellent. Perfect. So uh, who'd like to go first? Uh, I will. I'll go first uh, with one and then I'll go again later. How about that? That's perfect. Mess around day. All right. Uh, unintentional comedy. Uh, tying tying into my Brockway fact, uh, my first one is about Stargate. is is about the movie Stargate. Uh, there's a character in that movie named Nabay, or also they, they rename him Jordy because I, I guess that was too weird a name. He is. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean they rename? Like in the movie they renamed him. I think so. I, I'm just looking it up. Like, I or haven't like they, seen the actual... Or like they Spielberg did. Like, they digitally went back and changed his name. I, I pretty, I'm pretty. i pretty sure just my faulty half-memory has, like... They were like, ah, I'm not saying a bay every time. You're fucking... You're Jordy. Look at you. You look like a Jordy. Okay. Uh, but that's... I, I don't know. I have... For reasons that will soon become clear, I have not seen Stargate uh, since the first time in 1994 or what, whenever it was. Okay. And uh, I saw it in the theater. I saw it in the theater with my dad and my best friend uh, because we're all nerds, my, my dad included, very much included. Did your dad and, buy a ticket or did he try to trade a dolphin painting? <laughs> no, that was, that's my stepfather. My, I, I have okay. one normal father that raised me and then one grifting <laughs> okay, stepfather. Sorry. Uh, Do either was, of them listen to this podcast? Okay. No. No, they don't. <laughs> Why would they support me <laughs> when I have proven, when I've showed what I do for a living for so many years? They're waiting for it to get good. It's not going to happen. I uh, know we were watching Stargate, and to paint the picture, this is in Redmond, Oregon, which is uh, it's kind of an upscale place now, but it used to be just a real rural cattle town. Real conservative, real square, real straight-laced kind of people and uh so both of my stories are about movie theaters uh they were both they both take place in redmond so that's that's even amongst the sci-fi scene that's the crowd that is with me when i tell this story and they had uh as only 1994 could a very uh gentle and sensitive depiction of a mentally challenged person uh nabay was the character uh i say that he's he's a simple jack he is uh-huh. Definitely handled about as tastefully as as a as Tropic Thunder. Uh, the actor I don't think is disabled. I looked him up a little bit. His name is Gian and Loeffler, and uh, he his bio on IMDb says he was born and raised in Switzerland. Uh, his mother was a pianist, and his father is a medical doctor. He began his career in theater. Uh, in New York, he's a member of the Actors Conservatory, and he studied at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. And I did look that up. That's a very okay. reputable star-producing like theater institute. So this man is a thespian, mm-hmm. a, a thespian in every sense of the word, and uh, he is playing the mentally disabled, uh, mentally challenged man Nabay in the movie Stargate on on this uh, Egyptian planet. They're like a, the a primitive. You do at least three semesters to train for that. <laughs> primitive uncontacted planet he is used sort of to comedic effect sort of like pulling on your heartstrings night it was 1994 mentally challenged uh individual rules and the scene that got me was there's this big battle scene kind of towards the finale and everybody else has left cover 
And they're getting like just drilled by the superior technological force that are the the aliens. And only Neve is left back at their old cover. And he has to get out of there. He has to get out of this like pyramid kind of area. But he's pinned down. And everybody's screaming for him to run. And so he finally decides to run just right out in the open. And they go into slow motion. And there's this swelling music. But then he's not running. He's doing like this really exaggerated speed walk. Oh. <laughs> like, like so precisely that it looks like he's trying not to di- get disqualified from speed walking. Like he's right. counting. That careful heel to toe. And, and then it shows like what they were taking cover for. And it's like a fleet of Egyptian space jets. And they all fly in targeting just this one mentally challenged man and blow him just to shit. Just explode the entire, everything he's ever touched. He doesn't make it? He does not make it. Everybody's screaming. And then at the end, to put a button on the scene, they show his helmet pop off and go rolling down the ramp. And I fucking lost it. I laughed so hard in the movie theater. (laughs) And my dad was mad at me. My best friend was... Started off mad at me and then started like, all right, that's pretty fucking funny. Yeah, he turned around on it, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I wish we could show this to normal people. Do do normal people with healthy brains find this tragic, like, oh my gosh, they've got to fight for Jordy now because he's tragically... Because <laughs> no, no. everything about how this is shot from the expression on his face to how ineffectually he's running to the way he just disappears in a cloud of dust. just It's not even close. He, he's, he's just utterly obliterated. It's such a mismatch. He had no chance. <laughs> By a fleet of Egyptian spaceships, space jets. It's just for, for him, only him. He's not like in a crowd and, oh, no, he's the only one that got it. It's just him. And they're like, they're targeting... <laughs> they're targeting just him. It's not like they're trying to stop him from hitting the self-destruct button and like he he's trying to sacrifice. He's just trying to get back to cover. Yeah. It's not like he it's <laughs> he like oh my gosh, where he he's was. to get to the, the, the energy core. We have to stop this one, you know, guy from making it like no no no, he's just trying to run to safety. He's just one sad, the least effective soldier they have. And it's just like an act of bullying. Yeah. Yeah, the only stakes are emotional and they have somehow turned the turned that into a joke so like they've they've shot themselves in the foot with their own emotional stakes by making it funny for him to die it's if you rephrase it just a little bit (laughs) you could have you could have a guy in a wheelchair in this scene right okay you have a guy in a wheelchair and he he's rolling out of let's say the lincoln memorial and then as he's rolling out and all of his friends are going roll faster roll faster a squad of f-14 fighter jets flies in like five of them and they fire just a full complement of missiles (laughs) and they all each one one after another hit this man in a wheelchair exploding him into dust and at the end his fedora pops off and drifts down to the ground like yeah the, the construction of this each element is completely absurd and it doesn't help that no, it's on Egypt. There's space. Like it doesn't yeah, matter. No, there's a space pyramid. Like it's not as silly as what you're making it sound like with the Lincoln Memorial. No, no, no. It's a space pyramid, and these are Egyptian starships. There was a movie from the late '90s by the guy who did Highlander, uh, Russell Mulcahy. Uh, it's called Resurrection. Have you uh, seen this movie? No. Okay, it's like uh, Christopher Lambert's in it. He's it's like a knockoff of Seven, and there's some guy. If I remember the details right, he's trying to make like a Frankenstein. So he's killing people for their body parts and he's going to make himself a Frankenstein. And then uh, there's this scene. It's a very evil and spooky movie. But Christopher Lambert's like teaching his son to ride a bike. And like he gets bumped by a guy on, a ro- on rollerblades. And 
like his son like gets away from him on the bike and it is like this 10 minutes of slow motion while this kid just just keeps going in a straight line straight into traffic everyone <laughs> in the entire movie sees it coming except for this kid and they're like no don't and then like then we watch him like slowly get eaten by the front tire of a car it's it's fucking outrageously funny but uh, that was not what they were going for no it's and that's kind of the funniest thing to me is when you fuck up on like your emotional moment so badly that it turns into just yeah. one of the funniest things that you've ever seen unexploded zany landmine that's going to be most of this episode most of our examples but okay but robert did anyone else in the theater laugh at that moment no See, this is my thing. I'm worried that we're not going to have the audience on our side for this, especially if they're from. Yeah, like, there may not. be people this one's listening. Just for us, absolutely. Like, they're like, no, I cried when that when that guy died because. But maybe the thing is, if you've consumed as much comedy as we have, the only thing that makes you laugh is when someone is trying really, really hard to be sincere and just misses on the just side of ridiculous. Him. Because like that moment of the guy, and I've now watched this several times, the YouTube clip of the guy getting exploded. This is the thing when when friends <laughs> we would gather to watch like have like a bad movie night, which I assume is something all of us have done, is we would shout credits because we would imagine if the movie just ended there, like, like <laughs> right. and just, just yeah. the Stargate theme song and the credits, or like this. That's like you know, no moral. The the life is futile. <laughs> <laughs> As the helmet bounces down the steps, it just freeze frame. There's on the helmet. A, a, just cut to black. That that was that was my guy. That was my first one. I love him. Um, I'm talking about. Uh, I actually did an article on this on the site. Uh, uh, I love dragged Acro- across concrete. Um, I think it's maybe the most unpleasant movie uh, that is conceivable. Like not of all time. I just think like it's it's maxed out. It's so unpleasant. It's like weirdly racist and right wing it's uh like aggressively uh uneventful at times there's a scene and this is a real thing in the movie where mel gibson silently watches vince vaughn eat an egg salad sandwich in a car and that's a fucking as a comedy writer that's done like that's if i wanted to explain how shitty something is that's i might consider dude this thing sucks like mel gibson watching vince vaughn eat an egg salad sandwich in a car but uh, that's someone a bit yeah, that's a Dennis Miller bit. He, someone wrote it, filmed it, and uh, they know it's unpleasant. Mel Gibson's like, this fucking sucks. I hate watching the eat sandwich. And Vince Vaughn's like, hey, baby, baby, it's f- uh, fuck you. Like, like, nobody likes each other in this whole film. I think it's crazy that Jason's actually seen this movie more than once. Well, I've seen it more than once. Okay, look, we need to, the context of this podcast has to rest on the fact that I could be a very famous author someday still. We don't know. We right, cannot right. create anything that will jeopardize that. I appreciate <laughs> that many parts of dragged across concrete legally qualify as a hate crime in, in most <laughs> states in this, in this country. I We did a podcast about it for because I watched it and then I told uh, Tom Ryman and David, I was like, we've got to talk about this movie. This is like, I can't mm-hmm. take my eyes off of it. It's literally Mel Gibson playing a racist who gets in trouble for racism and then it kind of turns yeah. out that like he's explaining why his racism is right it's like vince vaughn is and it's just it's 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 18 vince hours wants long. Money. it's the longest stick. movie ever made so we did the podcast i had to watch it a second time for the podcast because i take notes because i do prepare a startling amount for the podcast i turn up on 
And then I wound up watching it a third time because it was just on somewhere. I was and I just like left it on. It's like I can't stop watching this. I am not in any way supporting Mel Gibson or the financiers of this film or the the director who <laughs> listening to him is somewhere between like an anti woke. Uh, edgy guy or a straight up white nationalist. I don't know. I don't know him. I'm not accusing him either way, but he's somewhere in that spectrum. I'm not trying to, he to makes put art money in any of these people's pockets, but man, it is I have never forgotten this movie. Yeah. I like I like that guy. I'm blanking on his name. I knew it at one point in time, a director, because he makes movies that if you just read the synopsis, you're like Oh, so you're a racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can just immediately. Like, it's so on the nose that you would not think anything else. But then he'll, like, you watch the movie and you're like, oh, okay, this is, like, kind of a functional movie in parts. Yep. And it takes a long time because, like, wait, okay, okay, now it's racist. So it's, it, it lulls you, like, twice while. Yeah. But it, it falls through on that promise that, like, in the synopsis, uh, I posit. What if, uh, what if Native Americans, what if Indians, were uh, were savage animals and we were right to kill them? I'm just saying, what if that? What if that was Bone a movie? Tomahawk is like, the film fuck. that he's referencing. If you guys don't realize, yep. dragged across, across <laughs> concrete and Bone Tomahawk, directed by the same guy, S. Craig Zoller, I believe is his yeah. name. Yeah, that's, that's name. it. <laughs> so you you hear that synopsis, and you're like, yeah, I don't need to see that. But then you watch it and like that first part where Kurt Russell is just being a cowboy and talking. You're like, this is a functional movie. I kind of like this. Mm-hmm. And it takes a little while, but by the end, you're like, yeah, okay. You were right. No, you were right. You're right. This is all racist. I I really like the choice of Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn as the leads because um, I said this in the article, but I, I do think they're both an equally funny choice for somebody's favorite movie actor if they're the worst person you've ever met. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Different direction. They're complete opposites. Yeah, but. yeah but, but they're both very reasonable, very funny choices. Um Okay, My so, thing with Vince Vaughn is just that every time like modern Vince Vaughn is mentioned, I assume like he's been canceled. <laughs> like in my, in my mind is just like right. we get, he can't have another movie after what he did. I don't think he actually did anything, but one hundred percent of the time, I just assume he did something terrible. Yeah, and that's why he's not around. I actually like legitimately love Mel Gibson movies. Like he, uh, like the Lethal Weapon movies, Apocalypto is f- so amazing. Uh, he gave me my love of uh, Richard Stark, Donald Westlake's uh, pen name, because of Payback, which I think is like the best adaptation of any of his books. Um, but so, like, it's tough that he sucks. He's like one of those people where I'm like, man, I wish, I wish he didn't suck. I, I wish he didn't suck because in the other room, my very nice dog is sleeping, and he is named after a Mel Gibson character. <laughs> man, God, that's that's rough. R U F F. Not, not to get off into something seri- serious, I have no idea to what degree Mel Gibson's issues are due to his being an alcoholic and clearly having a mental illness. Like, he has problems mm-hmm. beyond just being having bad views. There's stuff wrong with him that I don't right. know. I, I don't know. It's uh, He shows up at a lot of Trump stuff these days. Uh, I don't know. Well, his dad is like a full-on, like, anti-Semite, like a... 
uh, Alex Jones guest maniac. Yeah, so, you know, it's just – that's one reason why I hate to admit that I find this movie compelling. And we haven't even gotten to Sean's hilarious moment yet. But, but, but all this context <laughs> matters because it's only in the middle of this six-hour-long dragged across concrete that this scene – this bizarre scene hits so hard. But the yeah. thing with – is that the casting in this movie is that he – this is like the most perfect piece of casting maybe ever because it's a cop who's on the verge of retirement, who is so thoroughly burned out and jaded and racist and the world has moved on and he's clinging to his racism and he wants out. And like, it's all etched on the lines in his face. Like he, he embodies, like he just, he just told him like, no, you know what? I'm not even going to turn the camera on. Just walk around for a while. (laughs) We'll record some stuff. It's so authentic because he's just playing himself. They just switched the professions around. Like he, you know, I've been in this business forever. I'm smarter than all you people. I know more than all you people. You're all, you're wrong. I'm right. And it's like, yeah, he, it's a, it's an Oscar winning performance because I don't think there's much performing there. I wonder if at any point he realized it, that that's just him. Because like, yeah, this completely different. This guy's a cop. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not really a cop. Well, the, I play a cop a lot. <laughs> oh, I, shit. Wait, hold on. I play a cop a lot. <laughs> I'm a lot like, oh, no. I think he wasn't even like uh, thought of for the role. Uh, or he might have been, but um, I think Vince Vaughn showed him the script when they made, um, I, I can't remember the name of the war movie they made together, but like, that's when he showed Mel Gibson the script. And he's like, oh, this is fucking great. I want to be in this. So it's just a, a crazy coincidence. So maybe they rewrote it for Mel Gibson. They're like, oh, okay, well, Mel said yes, then we'll make the character much, much, much more racist. <laughs> Do a punch-up pass on the racist. <laughs> a racist punch-up pass. <laughs> we'll get to 4chan, see what they come up with. The part I wanted to talk about, uh, which was in the article, is obviously the hilarious time when Jennifer Carpenter gets shot in the head. Now, it, it sounds, hear me out, uh, in a normal movie, you try to build some emotional stakes like, oh, these guys are bad. They're going to kill the hostages. And you kind of just got like a few seconds to show the audience uh, it's bad to kill hostages. This hostage doesn't deserve to die. Um, and so instead of just doing that, instead of just giving a little moment of humanity to say, like, this character is good and it would be bad if she died, they cut away from the main movie for 11 full minutes. I'm not exaggerating. It starts with her trying to get on a bus and she can't and you don't know why yet and she goes back to her apartment and she's not being let into her own apartment because her husband won't let her because she just wants to see her baby and the husband's like you can't fucking see the baby you've taken two weeks of of paid time off four weeks of maternity eight weeks of maternity whatever it is uh she hasn't been at work in months because she's addicted to her baby like a junkie so she's like screaming at her husband let me in i just want to touch the fucking baby and he's like you can't come in you can't touch the baby so so this director, this writer-director, auteur, he's like, I need to show the audience that uh, this woman has something to live for. So he stops his main movie and does like a full, like, mini film about this woman's crippling love of her baby. And we follow her on this journey for obviously quite a long time. She finally gets back on the bus and uh, gets to work and she's just completely miserable. She can't be away from her baby. It's like eating at her physically. And she's a great actress, and she is showing all this trauma in her face. Uh, they get to the bank. Everybody knows her deal. They're like, my dear sweet lady, you are, we are, you are welcome back at the bank. We love your son. And they built like a fucking actual shrine to her toddler, or her infant, newborn, uh, here in the bank. Uh, it's that weird. 
the, we are now in the Twilight Zone just to accommodate this director trying to communicate this woman loves a child. The entire movie screeches to a halt for this, by the way, because you understand yes. people have not seen Dragged Across Concrete, the 18-hour-long the film, that it is about these two racist cops, and then there's this heist, this huge bank heist that's about to happen, and then they wind up off-duty having to like try to, to take down these bad guys who are even worse than them and there's a lot of twists and turns it's like an old like 70s style thriller pot boiler type thriller but in the, in the middle of it mm -hmm. like this woman is not a player in this plot whatsoever like yeah. this is the absolutely introduced yeah for the she first happens time. to work at the bank where this heist is about to go down where they're going to steal just like 200 million dollars worth of gold or something like that and it's like it just stops and you just got this woman you've never met before and this whole thing with a baby and it's building to something, but it's not clear what, but it goes on for a very long time. Yeah. And the tone is totally and different from anything else in the movie. I haven't actually seen the movie, and I don't want to, <laughs> so I'm not going to. Uh, but I did, I, I, I did find that scene. I've watched this entire, this entire scene. I will argue that, that no, it doesn't like make sense or is fine, and it's just the context that makes it jarring. This is completely insane. Like, yes. I worry that the way Sean has phrased some things, people are like, oh, he's exaggerating comedically. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, she's addicted to her baby. No, they sell that because she won't leave until he sticks the baby's foot through the door so that she can, like, lick it. Just like, <laughs> yeah, just give me a little taste of that baby. Just enough to get me straight. Just give me some baby foot. Oh, just give me a little hit <laughs> of that foot. And then she gets the foot. You're like, that's not how human beings work at all. Like, it, I, I get that you're sh trying to show some sort of, like, mental breakdown after pregnancy which does happen but you're not you're not sucking dick for baby foot like it's right it's, it's such a caricature is, it's not a one-to-one -one. you can't just replace <laughs> crack like you wrote this whole scene with crack and then you swapped you found replaced with baby and you're like god this is this is so good <laughs> it was mel gibson's note he says hey what if the crack was a baby crack like, baby no just a normal no no, baby. no no you're not listening I need to. I need to. I need to explain how much she loves something. Well, you know who loves stuff? Uh, people that smoke crack. They love crack a lot. <laughs> so maybe there's something you can work with there. Maybe a viewer will have figured out what's going on right at this point. But that this is just like a single-minded, insane director trying to communicate something as hard as anyone's ever communicated anything. This woman loves her baby. It would be a tragedy for her and a baby if she died. Uh, and it's all just so that she can get completely fucking executed, like just seconds into the heist, like just to raise the stakes a tiny bit, uh, so she can get her face blown off. And, and even then she's like still cra baby crazy in the final moments. She gets her, both her hands blown off, uh, in a pretty excellent practical effect where like Jennifer Carpenter has these mannequin arms and they like pop the hands off of them and they're like filled with squirting goo like a like you know the Saturday Night Live sketches when someone's puking and they like hold their sleeve up to their mouth and like like pukes comes out like her her mannequin arms are rigged up with like tubes of blood squirting arteries uh it's fantastic and then she's down on the ground and she pulls out with like her two or three fingers she has left pulls out the little baby sock and tells the heister hey hey can you make sure my baby gets this his name is Jackson and he barely lets her finish that word before just shooting her head into a, a, a mist. There's, I get why this is so compelling. Because it's all the, like, again, we kind of 
skips past like you mentioned how weird it is that everybody at the bank knows about this and is facilitating it. Yeah. Well, what we didn't mention was that it's it's basically James Lipton. Like, yes. The guy from inside the actor's studio. Yeah, he's absolutely doing that character. He's absolutely doing like an over-the-top James Lipton delivering a Shakespearean soliloquy about like <laughs> this lady's baby. He stands up and he's like, oh, well met and welcome to the bank. Back to the bank at last for my fine lady. I wrote down an actual quote and he says, all of us at the bank have great expectations for your boy. Wondrous expectations on a global scale. Like, what the fuck is going so, on? Yeah, is, it's too weird. It's Tim and Eric shit. It's like yep. you're just breaking it so completely to do some random thing that is not related at all to the movie that you feel like you've just briefly gone mad. <laughs> and, and then there is the actual baby shrine and then she holds up the, like... He is completely disconnected from humanity and logic, and all he was trying to communicate was some some people like babies. Like just, it's so it, easy to do that. Yeah, it's just when she gets shot okay. in the head, it's an Evil Dead Two type effect. They've used like a mannequin head <laughs> and they've blown it to pieces. Like she has no head. Like her face just gets blown apart. And it, it's absolutely right. the scanner's head yeah, explosion. Yeah, and again. Like, it's it's a comic. The same explosion. with the young disabled man in Brockway's terrible, awful example <laughs> that, that died at the, at the hand of those fighter jets. It's the same thing where it's not like she decides in a key emotional moment, like I'm going to sacrifice myself to save these other right. people, or I'm going to die hitting the button to hit the alarm. Like like it's like oh you realize what to say. It's like no, she's like just standing there trying to surrender. And like a coworker is gonna like send an email to the police, and she's like, "No, don't do that." And because she makes that sound, they they blow her hands and then head off. It's just totally meaningless. And I guess from the director's point of view, it's like, see how meaningless the violence is. But it's all framed in such a way that it's so goofy. And again, I nothing think else in the movie be. has this tone. Yeah. I think you might be giving him too much artistic credit. I think all he wanted to do was say, look at how me evil these guys are. And he was just like, what would be more evil than killing an innocent person? Okay, what if an innocent person was like, not just innocent, but like baby crazy innocent? And I don't know. What it, if she was addicted to baby? What if she'd do oh. anything for baby? <laughs> it's, it's so fucking crazy. And... um Sometimes a head explosion is just a great punchline. It's not often, but it is here. Like it's a good, yeah. it, the way it's executed, the time that it happens, all of the insanity that comes before it. You're like, yeah, this has to end with somebody's <laughs> head exploding. That made sense. So I looked at. Uh, I was doing some research just when I was working on the article, just to kind of get, seeing if I could get the vibe of the movie from the internet, because I figured the internet would hate it, just because it's it's racist and unpleasant and too long. And I found a YouTube video that was basically the opposite of my take. It was like, oh my God, guys, I was so wrecked by this scene. Oh, this emotionally powerful scene. And I was just like, this is, oh, <laughs> I don't know. It it felt like someone so clearly going for emotional manipulation that it just had no chance of working from the beginning. I don't know, but it worked on this guy. It worked on this. By the way, some people, we keep talking about how long this movie is. Somebody right now has just Googled it and found that the movie is only two hours and 40 minutes long. It's shorter than the new Mission Impossible movie. And somebody out there is saying, well, now this is ridiculous, ridiculous because Jason constantly raves about RRR. 
which is fully 30 minutes longer than Dragged Across Concrete. That's true. I, I'm telling you, RRR feels about 45 minutes long. Uh, to me, yeah. like I, I would love to meet someone making the argument that like RRR and Dragged Across Concrete could be compared in any way at a one to one, or that the that the time works the same in these yeah. two films. A fucking really movie about this runtime. dicks doing a stakeout versus just the most spectacular dancing kung fu animal launching spectacle ever from South Asia. Yeah, it's like barely. It's it's basically over before you've finished settling into your seat. Whereas dragged across concrete, <laughs> right. like I get from the title, it's supposed to imply that it's like an ordeal. I, I think the mm-hmm. pacing choices were made on purpose. That it feels long like you feel every minute it is punishing there are two other moments i do want to point out one something that not even sean knew which is that the film dragged across concrete has a soundtrack of like 70s (laughs) r&b and then when you watch the credits if you watch closely you will realize that all of those songs have been written by the same guy the director of the film because <laughs> every song in the soundtrack was written by him and performed by either people he he hired or he sang on some of them. I think. I think uh, I think maybe the R and B community uh, might not fully welcome him and his music. Maybe maybe there's some sort of tragic past there, and that's yeah. uh, that's why he's making these movies. But the <laughs> other thing is that it has one of my favorite tropes in all of fiction. Which is where the, so, again, please do not misinterpret my laughter here. The primary motivation of the protagonist of the film, Mel Gibson's character, is that he is trying to raise money uh, through his corrupt policing to send back to his wife so they can move away from the blacks. <laughs> yes, because his daughter is getting reverse hate crammed all yeah, the she's time. Getting, that's real. It's in the Yeah, because script. we all know how that's how that works, that young black kids love to pick on the children of white police officers. Like, that's a, that's a yeah. great thing to do that won't get your own life totally destroyed. And that's and he claims that she's been assaulted like, like 10 times or whatever. Like, constantly she's being bullied because, like, oh, you're the white daughter of this, this white police officer. Surely there'll be no repercussions for us picking on you anyway so the triumphant moment of the movie is that the one of the the guys doing the heist gets away with the money but agrees to send some money back to mel gibson's wife because mel gibson spoiler he winds up dying at the end but agrees to because he helped to send some of the money to his ex-wife so she can move away from the black people and that's still like your happy ending. The final scene is, the final scene is she gets a box. <laughs> the final me. scene is she gets a box in the mail or by a courier, and opens it, and it's full of gold bars, and she starts like crying because <laughs> like oh thank God yes after all of this I thought it was so hopeless he you know my husband is gone, you know and it, but yes now we can move away from the minorities. We've done it. We this is like <laughs> yeah. the, the end of the hero's journey. Is you get to move away from from the the people who aren't your same color. But the thing this happens in so many movies. And if somebody gave me a box of thirty million dollars of gold bars, I mean, what am I going to do with this? 
What, I'd be so what fucking am I nervous. Do? What do you do with? Yeah. I imagine me going to my bank with a box of gold bars. They just look at me and it's like, yeah, <laughs> wait here. We need to go back and call someone we, because <laughs> right. you did not come by these by any. There's there's no job that pays in gold bars. Like, <laughs> wait a yeah. minute. This is our bank printed on here. <laughs> these. And the other guy had like this like opulent mansion with like a live-in masseuse. So he took the gold and he like just turned it into cash and spent it in the loudest possible way. Uh, I guess the IRS doesn't pay attention to that. Like, that, plus he was an ex-con. Like he just got out of prison, and now here he is with unlimited wealth after a giant, probably the biggest gold heist in the history of the world happened. Like. I don't know, in his neighborhood. I don't know. I, I feel like maybe uh, the person who wrote this movie could be an idiot. There is a film that routinely makes lists of the scariest movies ever made. 2011 film called We Need to Talk About Kevin. Uh, <laughs> Somebody put this on a scariest movie of all time list? Time you go, you go really? on any Reddit thread about the scariest and creepiest movie you've ever seen. Somebody will mention, we need to talk about Kevin. Uh, it stars Tilda Swinton. Wow. And it is about what if you had a child who was a dick? <laughs> <laughs> problem yeah. child. I've seen this. It's, is it a reboot of Problem Child? <laughs> I think they were going for sociopath, but you're right. They, they landed on dick. Understanding the context of this podcast, I do not want anyone clipping this out of context and saying that Jason thinks it's funny when a school shooting happens. Because it's not. <laughs> if a school shooting. You're busted. If a school Can somebody make a, a clip that and then make like a techno remix of just... Just that, just that sentence. If a school shooting happens on the day this episode goes up, we didn't know about it. We recorded it in advance. On the day that we're recording this, there was not a school shooting, and we could not have known there was going to be one, other than the fact that there is one every every few days. But otherwise, this is totally unintentional. So, the, I, as I mentioned earlier. Nothing makes me laugh harder than a failed attempt at high, high drama to the point that probably the most diseased brain thing I do, I, mean, I hesitate to even say this, on social media, sometimes when people talk about raising money for their food pantry, you know, these food pantries where they gather money for the homeless and they, it's, you know, it's a okay. place where you can come get canned goods if you're, if you're starving they will mistype it as food panty. So if you go on Twitter and search for the term food panty, P-A-N-T-Y, you will get many, many posts over the last decade of people earnestly in tears saying, we want to thank you for the community coming out. We raised $5,000 for the West Arlington food panty. <laughs> We're going to eat it all. We're going to eat it all tonight, baby. <laughs> We're going to wear it around, get a real stinky. I laugh every time. And it is so stupid. It is so such an objectively <laughs> wrong thing to find funny that this is a real serious issue. And they just made a typo in the course of trying to be sincere and to thank the community for supporting the poor in their neighborhood. And they accidentally said food panty. And then the mental image it creates in my mind that these people paid $5,000 for a food panty. Mm -hmm. Now, when you picture the food panty, uh, what foods are you picturing? I'm picturing fruit. I don't know why. 
But uh, are you picturing Actual like sandwich meats? Cornucopia, like a cornucopia <laughs> laid out in the shape of a big panty, uh-huh. like corn and stuff, like a big. Okay. Some pumpkins, some gourds, some decorative gourds. If some of the funniest movies that I see are what I call misery porn, where it's a type of movie where they are trying to emphasize how miserable the character's life is, but it is not supposed right. to be funny or ironic or campy at all. It is just over the top. This little girl is an orphan, and then she was abused by this person, and then this person, and then this happened, and then she was set on fire. And this, and because I know there's an audience for that for some reason, there's people that love to watch that stuff. But if you do misery porn like 1% off, you get something that is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I don't know why. I, I, I could talk to a therapist about it. But <laughs> at my point in my life, I've seen and written so much comedy that the things that hit me that make me laugh have to be unexpected. It has to be something I didn't mm-hmm. go into knowing was going to be funny. So we need to talk about Kevin is misery porn. It's about a woman who gives birth to a son who is evil from birth. Like you literally, like he cries all the time, only just when he's with her, but not when he's with her dad. And as you find it later, it's purely because he's trying to torture her. He like refuses to potty yeah. train just to spite her. He's trying to make her life hell. and But it's not like a demon possession thing. It's supposed to be, like this incredibly serious look at what it's like to raise a sociopath. In the entire movie, there's a mystery that it's building to because it cuts from present day when she is alone and depressed and her life has gone terribly wrong to flashing back to her raising this this terrible child. And it's telling you that mm-hmm. something horrible happened and we don't know what it is right. yet. He's in Ezra Miller's in prison. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the the son the the teen, the son is played at various ages, but the the son at the point that he reaches maximum evil is played by Ezra Miller, who who does a good job of conveying that in this movie, to their credit. Now, so the entire film was leading up to the climax of the film, where you learn the mystery, you learn the terrible thing that the kid did. So you have the two timelines, which is present day aftermath. And then leading up to from from birth up to the terrible thing, and you find out in the climax that the kid did a school shooting, and uh, the way they shoot it implies that he killed everyone at his school. He like barred all the doors shut, and then when it's over, he walks out alone, Um, and he did it with a bow and arrow. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the scene where he's shooting with the bow and arrow. He's like orgasmically pumping arrows, but he's all by himself. Like, it's just a shot of him, and he's just pulling him out of this quiver, just shooting an arrow, shooting an arrow. And uh, I guess they're playing screams, but but we don't see anyone get hit by an arrow. And I don't know if this was artistic or budgetary, but it was a fucking stupid choice. Because, um, okay, this movie feels really like clumsy artistically it feels like a freshman film project to me because there's like a lot of like heavy-handed but really meaningless motifs and like just sort of i don't know a bunch of stupid shit that sort of feels like a dumb person's idea of symbolism or importance but uh, here's the scene where he's shooting arrows and we don't actually see the consequence of these arrows so to me i'm saying i'm being told by the art that this isn't really happening this is he's imagining this but then they start showing the dead bodies getting pulled out. And I'm like, wait, so it's really happening? And then there's just like the the Rambo side of me that's just like, okay, somebody's shooting you with an, a bow and arrow. 
uh, that's a really solvable problem. Like if you got three people, like they'll get one of you. And and he kills an entire school with with like field tipped bow and arrow. Yeah, we should specify like it's not a hunting, but it's not a compound bow. It's it's a bow that I'm pretty sure I have from a beginner archery class. Yeah, like it's just from his school archery class. I am assuming. If you so had a football helmet and were holding a medicine ball over your vital organs, you are not going to get killed by this bow for forty-five minutes. a very good chance, even if he's an expert shot with a bow that like shitty at a range, uh, they won't even stick in you. I was like, I, yeah. I did beginner archery and like at a at enough range, at a good enough range, which I would argue is possible in this environment. Like if you're in a gym or something, right? It would hurt. It would make a little dent in you, and it would bounce off. And I'm just imagining that moment of when he's like, I'm going to start my school massacre, and then he thwang, and somebody just goes, ow, fuck. What the fuck? <laughs> this is a really important point, because people who know their bows and arrows, the kid's hobby, like why he has that bow and arrow, his hobby is not hunting. He's not a deer hunter. Like where I, where I went to school, like kids took a day off the first day of deer season. Like that was an excused absence. Like they, And those, like mm-hmm. that's a compound bow with arrows that are razor tipped and that will go right all the way through a deer. He, his hobby is target is archery. He has a target in his backyard, like a straw target with the, the bullseye in front of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I had. And so his dad for Christmas, it's like, it's like dark foreshadowing. His dad for Christmas gets him a, a a good target shooting bow and his arrows include the ones he brings to school are target arrows. Like they're, they're not, they're pointy. But they don't have a razor tip on them. They're just they, they're made to puncture a straw a straw target. So my issue with this, even in 2011 when this came out, if any of us and again, send your hate mail to the 1900 hot dog inbox, not to me. I, I can't be held responsible at gmail.com. Yeah, I, I can't be held responsible for what I say on someone else's show. That's the rule. If I was working That's in an fair. office or if I was at school as a student. And they shouted, like, in this environment we have, somebody said, oh, my God, there's a mass shooting. It's Kevin. He's shooting up the school. And everyone starts running and stampeding and screaming, like, we're doing the mass shooter drills. They're locking the doors and turn off the lights. And then if he stepped into my room holding that target, that that boy <laughs> bow and arrow, I would start For uh, ages 11 to 14. laughing. So hard that even if he shot me with it and it like punctured my thigh by like an inch, I think I would be laughing so hard that I couldn't even tackle him because it's like, this is objectively the funniest thing. Like I'm going to be telling this as a funny story for the rest of my life because you could survive being shot by like nine of those arrows. He would have to get get real lucky and (laughs) Uh, the fact that a gym teacher, that someone, a member of the football team, because, you know, the whole thing is he's kind of a skinny nerd, that after the very first failed shot, they didn't just tackle him and just beat him to a pulp. I'm not saying that yep. the characters in this movie deserved what they got. I'm just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying I needed I needed lip service paid to it. Like, how did this happen? Show me. Is I don't even care if it's like he's the best shot we've ever seen. He every every shot hits him right in the neck or something. But they had they had to show me the effect of this arrow and how everyone else decided not to like go take it from him. 
Well, there's something else in the way they shoot this scene. So the way they shoot the scene is, is as Sean said, like they they cut to him uh, alone in what appears to be just one room, like just. Yeah. And then they they do a bunch of uh, flash cuts of like he shoots an arrow, he shoots an arrow, he shoots an arrow, and then they they're playing screams, but it's all like kind of the same frame. He's in the same spot in the frame. He's he's apparently in the same room over and over again, and like they're trying to make it look like over and over and over again. He must have killed like 30 people in one room with this bow. But they're also, they're playing the actual sound that uh, that, that shitty little bow makes. And what it, what it does is go twang, twang, this jaunty little twang every time he's making, and he's making, I murder thee, I murder yeah. thee faces. Like, ah, ha, ha. And twing, yeah. twing. And then it gets faster and faster. So he's just going twing, 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 twing. It's, it's, and then, it ends with that scene ends with him like in front of an empty gym, like bowing to it and like posing tr- triumphantly. And so I guess that was a flashback to before he started the killing spree or, or okay. Cause it's just, it's so it's stupid. Implied, Cause what they're doing is right before he does the shooting, they're, they're playing the background, the sound of, of a pep rally of like the cheerleaders doing the fight, fight, whatever song. And so he has yeah. blocked off the gym, like all the access to the gym. So you see him setting up an advance in the gymnasium, and it is implied heavily that the entire school gathered for a pep rally and that he shot them all with arrows. Because when the police show up there, there's like this horror reveal because his mother you know, hears, oh my gosh, there's, there's a mass shooting at, at the high school. And so she runs there thinking her, her son, Kevin, is one of the victims, even though he's been you know a, a nightmare his whole life. But he's 16, you know, and so she shows up there and the horror reveal is they saw open the, he had put the, like these bike locks on the door and they open the door and he just walks out, like strides out confidently, like his hands up, like, you know, with a smirk right. on his face, like, yeah, you know, we all know what I've, what I've done in there. And then they start hauling out the bodies of his many, many, many dead classmates and they're coming out in stretchers and there's this horror shot of a corpse, a teenage girl's corpse with a bunch of arrows sticking out of it. I, I feel like you look ridiculous with an arrow sticking out of you. I, I think even in real life, <laughs> I think you look silly with an arrow poking out of you. Am I wrong to say that? I don't think because I disagree Because it's a festive element because yeah. of the feathers. It's because it looks like you got killed at Carnival. Yeah, it looks like you like took a slight beating in a Hagar the Horrible comic. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so then... The mother rushes back home to tell her husband and then her, she has a young daughter, like, oh my gosh, Kevin, you know, went crazy and also turned out to be the world's greatest archer. Like even Arthurian legend did not feature an archer who could kill as effectively as our son without even with a bow that's not designed to kill. Like who knew (laughs) he's apparently freaking Hawkeye from the Avengers. We should yeah. never have bought him 300 <laughs> arrows. That was a mistake. Because uh, you do picture him. Yeah, he has like a quiver, quiver on his back, which again, also looks ridiculous. If someone tried to attack you with yeah. one of, with that on his back, again, I realize that would be terrifying in the Middle Ages. In today's day and age, I feel like if somebody tried to rob your place of business, or even like Sean, like, you know, you have children. If a man tried to do a home invasion and he had a huge bow and then a quiver of arrows on his back, I feel like <laughs> some, what you felt would be, there'd be fear. But also, like, oh, this is this is going to be the best ask it would be very I've ever funny. delivered. <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I would, that would, would cheer me up so much. Like, if I was in a grouchy mood and a guy came into my home with a bow and arrow, I'd be like, oh my God, that's exactly what I needed. <laughs> so, her, the husband of this, uh, of the, the psychopathic kid, her 
the father of the, of the kid, Tolstoy's husband, is played by John C. Riley, who's done tons of comedy, but also tons of drama. But in the dramas, I, I, I struggle to see him as anything but a comedic actor. So yeah. she, to her horror, finds that before his her kid embarked on the rampage, he killed his father and his sister. And so the little girl is lying out on the lawn with arrows in her. And then the dad is lying out there with like two arrows in his back. And it is such, it's John C. Riley lying on a lawn with a bunch of arrows sticking out of him. If Tim and Eric did like a deadpan, like they had that horror series they did for a while. Like if they did a straightforward Mm -hmm. deadpan comedy of that scene, it would be shot like every frame would be identical to what they did here. Yeah, it's he's, how you would end a Steve Brule skit underwear. about. Yeah, if it, I'm Steve Brule. I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna learn how to do archery. Like that's what you would cut to, and it'd be pretty funny. <laughs> I like. There's something about about John C. Riley. I'm totally with you. I'm just trained to laugh at that guy. Like I do think he's a good actor, but I'm always like in any serious scene, I'm waiting for the punchline. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, what's he gonna do next? All right, uh, but, but there's. There's something very, he does this like beast-like character too, where he, he goes into his sort of berserker rage that is, I associate with him so closely. So when you context-free show me a picture of him collapse on the lawn with arrows in him, it looks like he was charging some hunters, like they were <laughs> hunting John C. Riley, and they took him down nobly mid-charge. It's just, no part of this strikes it as, as anything but the punchline. Like you just make, you make a whole sketch based on that punchline. You, you backdate a whole sketch in your mind. Like hunting the noble John C. Riley, and it just looks like such an easily survivable wound. Because I know that you have your lungs and stuff back there, but he gets shot in like the upper back. And I get that in an old Cowboys and Indians movie that would be enough to take a guy down. But I think in real life, man, I think you'd still be able to get away, or or yeah. turn around and kick his ass before he reloads. Just <laughs> punch him right in the head. <laughs> I had a quiver like that when I was a kid, and like if you do like a little hop, like if you try to do some cool stuff, like I'm gonna shoot two arrows real quick and then do like a somersault, all your arrows fall out. <laughs> yeah. yeah like. And not to belabor this one film, but after you see that climax, then you start to see the previous movie in such a weird light because all of the present day stuff it, throughout, it, what you find out when you meet the woman, again, she's very depressed and sad. And of course, now you know, oh, it's in the aftermath of her son, you know, doing a school shooting. But the movie opens before we go to the flashback of the terrible child. It's this heavy handed thing where it's like she's lying on her sofa with, with bottles of depressants and of antidepressants in the foreground on her coffee table. And like mm-hmm. plates of old food on the coffee table. And she gets up and she stumbles and knocks over her bottle of pills and it spills antidepressant pills all over the floor. And then she stumbles out onto the porch and the towns, the townspeople have vandalized her home. They've thrown red paint all over her car and her house because of like her son did, did the murder. And then there's like a child standing there scowling at her. And then she goes to, to work and there's an old man scowling at her. And then she goes to apply for a job and like her coworkers are scowling at her. And then she goes to get groceries. And one of the other shoppers, when she turns her back, comes and breaks all the eggs in her cart. (laughs) And it's like, now hold on. (laughs) She lost her own husband and daughter in this attack. Yeah. But like, are they claiming because part of the plot is that they, the other parents sued her for like parental neglect for allowing her child to shoot up a school with a bow and arrow. 
and, and she lost like she she lost her house and she's bankrupt and everything's miserable and the whole everyone in the town blames her for her kid going on this rampage i don't is that a thing? Do people like harass I, the shooters? If the shooter killed other members of their family, do the parents harass the survivors? Like, well, you should have reined him in better. You should have known he was a super, he was the greatest archer in history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. He could have used his powers for good. When you put it like that, maybe the movie's not crazy because he is the greatest archer in all of history. And, and she should have taken more responsibility. This is like the dark Hawkeye origin story prequel. Right. <laughs> we're, we're moving into the gritty phase of the Disney There's reboots. There's one point where like her all-time low pro, she t- has to take this very sad, crappy office job. And there's this creeper guy there who's like hitting on her. Again, she's played by Tilda Swin, and he's And she's like kind of like, no, 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 you know, because she's so depressed and her life is such a mess. She's like, no, nah, I'm not really interested. And he says, he like leans in and scowls at her like, you, you know, you, you should take what you can get because you should know no man is going to want you now. And it's like, I've yeah, met other middle-aged men. Even if Tilda Swinton had done the killings herself, they would have they would have sex with her. They that would not deter a single any middle-aged single man. They would just be so thrilled that she like doesn't have kids. Just makes it hotter. Yeah, the fact that yeah, it's like you know my son went on a rampage and he killed three hundred children with a bow and arrow. Would be like, oh really? That's that's you're the. You're, so no kids, huh? <laughs> You're the, that's the hottest thing I've ever heard. All right. Also, you you look like a movie star. Let's uh, yeah. Let's. Anyway. <laughs> I didn't one, know you had such a Tilda Swinton thing. Like the, that's kind of like interesting. Like the guy would be like the next day when his friends were asking him like who he'd banged, they'd be like, yeah, she she had so there was like there was a mass shooting or something like that fact would not even stick in his mind at the bar he would just still again yeah not because <laughs> Tilda Swinton's the hottest woman in the world just because again I've met other middle-aged single men they're not they're not picky I'm sorry it's the idea that they would shun her for it's like no I don't want to be tainted by like yeah that's not how it works <laughs> right yeah I don't think he was right I think that there was a truth to that scene, though, that this guy felt really entitled to having sex with Tilda Swinton because she, because he perceived her as like damaged goods. But uh, but yeah, that I think that was the the very first time in that entire movie where I was like, oh, I'm actually miserable. This is miserable because before then, all of the miserable, all the misery did play as comedy to me. Like it wasn't just the bow and arrow scene that was funny to me. Like everything they were trying to do kind of felt like. Uh, just like a dark comedy. It felt like Gummo or Kids, if you've seen those movies. Like, there's that uh, sort of a trend in the 90s to make like really gritty, disgusting, m- miserable comedies. And that's that's what this felt like. I thought it was a comedy the first time I watched it until I looked it up <laughs> and realized it one. Not a single person has ever referred to it even as being unintentionally funny. The director's really right. good. I, she did that. You were never really here. The really real? dark Joaquin Phoenix movie that I, a lot of people okay. hate, but I thought was really good and disturbing and well shot and and all of that is really dark and bloody. Uh, I don't think that was the but the whole everything to convey that the child is evil is just. There's a one point where out of spite he like intentionally poops his pants like in front of her. And at one point at age eight, she asks him if he wants a grilled cheese sandwich for lunch. And he scowls at her and says, I don't give a rat's ass. 
<laughs> what a cool kid. And they have the toddler that, at age like, you know, six or whatever he's supposed to be, four, five, six. They directed the toddler actor, like, do an evil scowl into the camera. Like, you're the most evil toddler in the world. And they yeah. do it where when he's with the dad, he's very loving and kind. And then he'll turn toward the mother, Tilda Swin, and give his evil scowl. And to the audience, <laughs> this is supposed to be, like, chilling. But when a toddler tries to do an evil scowl, like, it's it comes off as, as yeah. goofy. Or, or it's just, or they're just very pouty or whatever. I agree. Who amongst us has not been scowled at by a toddler? <laughs> uh, but it's all just so overwrought and it's just so over the top. And I don't know. They were trying to say something about, well, what would you do in this situation if you had to raise a psychopath? But it's like real psychopaths. It's not, they're not like that. They're not, they're not evil as infants. I don't think so. But it's just they're not they're not usually the greatest archer of all time. Yeah. Everything he does just so so goofy and mean and petty. At one point when he's a teenager to try to like bridge the gap with him, she's like, you know what, let's go out into we'll go out to a nice restaurant. Like like tomorrow night. Like you and I will go out. We never spend time time together. We'll go out. And so right she gets all dressed up to leave and she's like, All right, let's go out to out to dinner. And then he's in the kitchen eating an entire rotisserie chicken like an animal, like with his bare hands. And <laughs> what vengeance I've got you this time, mother. his appetite so she won't enjoy yeah. the dinner she took him out to. But it's like the way he did it is he just shoved his face into rotisserie chicken. It's just, and that's not supposed to be funny. Funny, it's supposed to be like, look at how dark his mind is that he would do this right before his <laughs> fancy dinner. That he would spoil his appetite. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the school shooting that I found extremely funny. All right, that's put perfect, that in the Jamie, techno yeah. remix. Yeah, thank. You. Let's let's mark that. That's that's how oh. the tech. That's the that's the hook right there. <laughs> All right, I'm I'm also the other one I brought is just the most famous example of this for somebody. Maybe if there's any chance of the audience relating to us, which there's not, and there should not be, uh, it will be on this the movie Titanic. Uh, when I saw Titanic for the first time in 1997, it was at that same theater uh, in Redmond, Oregon, very conservative, very small cattle town, uh, full of just uh, almost entirely middle-aged people taking this very seriously. And I saw it on a date, on a first date. <laughs> uh, we went and saw this movie and it, it was fine. We were watching the movie. I was kind of sleepy during it. I wasn't really paying attention. And then the the crash scene started, which was cool. Like they, they had effects and stuff for, mm -hmm. for the guys that were like, oh, I'll perk up here. And then, and then the propeller guy happens <laughs> and it, a lot of people know immediately what I'm talking about. Like maybe, maybe you laughed at it. Maybe you didn't. You probably noted it because as everybody else is just kind of falling off this boat, screaming and, and drowning, uh, one guy climbs over the, the railing to the back of the boat, which is up in the air. Now the, the boat splits in half. And then the, they're on the rear half and then it starts to, to sink and goes almost completely uh, vertical. So they're, they're on the back of the boat and thinking about jumping. And uh, another character jumps over the rail and he sees the guy next to him jump. And he falls uh, a little bit down and then he hits the propeller and he begins to spin. And my date begins to go very badly. Uh, so he, he, he emits this very gentle bonk when he hits the propeller, and I started laughing, and then he spins 
faster and faster and faster and he falls what seems like an impossible distance. He falls for like five seconds. And then the guy that was watching this climbs back over the railing and takes a drink. And that's classic. That's yeah. like some classic comedy shorthand for like, what? I'm going to need a drink to deal with this. And I laughed until I fucking cried. And I was the only one in that theater. We did not have a second date. Oh, did she it was, did she cite that? Did she say I can't go out? No, guy? no, no, she did not cite that. But I that cannot have helped Couldn't because have helped. she was just looking at me like. Yeah. What the fuck? Like, we need to talk about Kevin. This is a maniac. <laughs> this is a maniac right here. And there's... And, and to cap that scene off, like, I couldn't stop laughing because of that. But just when I was about to stop laughing, there's a bit, like, as the as the final moment when the boat goes down, you see that stern sink vertically all the way down. And they flash just for a second. And you see that guy that didn't want to jump. He's standing on the back of the boat and he's got like a crouched down surfer's stance and he surfs the Titanic all the way down into the water. <laughs> like he doesn't jump. He doesn't swim. He just surfs it like he's trying to beat the level. Like he fucking log rolled the Titanic. And he's like, hey, I got it all the way. Rode that wave all the way to the beach. <laughs> uh, I, I did. Uh, did you got you guys surely laughed. At no, propeller I'm guy. the guy in the I theater. So. I'm, I'm beloved in my community because I'm the guy who, where every movie is my Mystery Science Theater 3000. Like, I'll stand up and shout something, you know, like, <laughs> oh, that had to hurt. <laughs> and so, like, in that case, I, I stood up and, you know, shouted, <laughs> oh, that's what I call prop comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone loves it. Carried out of there <laughs> on their everyone, shoulders. Everyone stands up and applauds my witty one-liners yeah. because I'm I, I'm the one that they, they really came to see. It's, it's I'm famous. So, I have done an unusual amount of research uh, on this. I figured out the the behind the scenes of the propeller guy. A lot of thought was put into this and it makes it funnier to me that a lot of thought was put into this and that every, they eventually they wrote a motion capped uh, a lot of the actors and stuff and then put them in and you know kind of crude early CGI falling to their deaths because they didn't have to have a lot of details. Very chaotic scene and they're very small. But this one was so important that they hand animated every oh single God. cell of the man hitting the propeller and spinning. Uh, the man who did that was named uh, Andy Jones. This was his very first movie. And I like to I like to think his only job on this movie. I mean, that's probably not true, but I like to think he was like, you're the propeller guy and you, your job is to take care of propeller guy. Uh, he's now an Oscar winner for for other special effects work. So he, he, this really started a career for him. He did not start off very well, though. He he had they got all the information. James Cameron was very very thorough and very technical. So they mm-hmm. knew they knew like fall velocities from where he'd fall, how far it was to the ocean, how far it was to the propeller, things like that. And so he did a very faithful first draft of this and turned it in to James Cameron, who again was very like historical accuracy it's very important to get this crash just right he studied extensively all the mechanics of this crash how every part of how the boat reacted and went down like i believe he even made like some some discoveries with like the recreations of like how how this must have really happened so he turned in this shot and they called him in the office and we're like this sucks (laughs) he's like okay okay and they said uh, they asked him to double check the math on it and uh he says uh, i'm reading right from the article i assured him that the distance and rate of speed the figure was falling was correct he then asked me to double the distance he falls after hitting the propeller to the water 
<laughs> it would it would have been difficult to push the water plane away without breaking other parts of the shot, so I ended up animating the scale of the figure down to about 60% his size from the propeller to the water, giving the illusion that the figure was falling farther than he really was. This worked, and Jim approved the shot. So they, they got the mathematical version, and they said, ah, I need after he hits the propeller, I need him to spin more. I need him to spin I a lot it. faster and That's a, a good lot note. more. That's why he's the best. And what he did was he's like, well, I'll, so what actually happens in that special effect is that he hits the propeller, begins to spin, and then shrinks, <laughs> shrinks. to 60% his size. <laughs> so that, I think if we had not mentioned that shot, the comments would have been full of people saying the all-time greatest unintentionally funny scene is the propeller guy, the guy bonking off the propeller in Titanic, like including the sound he makes, the way he falls, everything about it. So, yeah, surely that's not an intentional comedy beat. It why is it there? It is not. Uh, I don't know because because it's still very. I giggle every time I see it, and in fact, we, we are not completely alone. At least on this one, I, I looking up propeller guy gives you a 10 hour loop somebody put on YouTube of him just hitting the propeller and spinning over and over again. Like it's, <laughs> it's clearly, I feel like it's, it's some people. I think it's a it Chekhov's gun type thing. I feel like if you're watching a bunch of propellers and you get through the movie and nobody falls into those propellers, like that's cinematic blue balls. I think James Cameron knows that. I think honestly, I think what that was supposed to do was just kind of spice up the scene. Like he would realize we have not had action in a long time. Now we're getting all of this action, but we need something, bam, like notable. You need like a notable yeah. moment here. You need spinning action. And, and he needs to spin more and then shrink 60%. Is what <laughs> we haven't had any spinning, no shrinking. <laughs> uh, uh, I did, however, in looking this up, the I found the Reddit thread uh, of people talking about this moment and... There were a few people that thought this was very funny. Uh, by and large, however, the sentiment was this was deeply serious. And uh, I would like to read uh, part of this Reddit thread to make us all feel like monsters in particular. Please. I can't really speak on the accuracy of the moment, but I assume the angle he hit the propeller at wouldn't have been enough to sever a limb. I love this scene. I cringe every time. It's so viscerally horrifying to me. I really, really hate when people laugh at it because I see no humor in it and I find it insensitive. <laughs> to propeller victims? <laughs> okay. The reply to that. They got bigger things to worry about, I think. <laughs> All of the... All of the people who have hit propellers and then shrank into the into the water. <laughs> the reply to this says, I absolutely agree. They wouldn't be laughing if it were their loved one that happened to. I, that's wow. probably true. Um, I but don't know that I necessarily sure. agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to choose a way to die on the Titanic, drowning, freezing to death in the water, having the boat fall on me after the it cracked in half, falling down and and then hitting the propeller and just pinwheeling it into the water. I think that would have to be the best way to go because again, everyone who survived would be telling that story for the next yeah, hundred years true. and their grandchildren would be telling, yeah, well, you know, here one guy hit the propeller. He went pinwheeling into the water. As everyone laughed despite themselves. He, he gave them a brief moment of joy in, in his life as he went out. Jason, you don't know how right you are. Here is the next comment. 
That scene always made me cringe, and ever since 9-11, it makes you think of all those poor, desperate people who leapt from the towers, and probably falling at least twice or three times the distance as people who jumped from the Titanic. Very chilling, very sad. I suppose in another 50 or 60 years or so, if someone makes another movie about September 11th, people alive then will have similar discussions about a scene of someone jumping from the towers. I guess, like, in the comic sense. Uh, he goes on to say, I've always been of the impression that the man who hits the propeller is Cyril Ricks, and the person who falls for the exceptional distance in the moment beforehand is Frank Prentice. Frank survived, and artistic license is obviously taken given the length of the fall, and described the enormous fall past the propeller. Cyril jumped at the same time, and Frank coming across him in the water, unconscious after apparently hitting something on the way or in the water. So it was, he, this person at least thinks uh, it was a real guy. And huh. and a hundred years later, we are still laughing at the gift he gave us. You're completely correct. And Jason. the guy who surfed the Titanic down, I actually remember from the like the DVD extras, like that was based on a real account. The guy saying, he's like, I didn't get my hair wet. He's like, I just rode the ass end down. He's like, it just went gently into the water and I just treaded water. He's like, I literally just, it was actually very easy. I don't know why everybody else didn't that do that. <laughs> you know what? It was really, it was actually very empowering. I've, uh, it really helped my confidence. I surfed that bitch into the water. <laughs> kind of made me feel like everybody else who died was weak. Like, <laughs> like maybe it was, maybe this is, this was natural selection doing its thing. Like, I don't, I don't want to say this or anything, but, uh, maybe some of these people couldn't just couldn't surf. <laughs> if you can't surf, get off the Titanic is all, is all I'm saying. That's the saying. I thought one of, I thought somebody was going to bring uh, Meet Joe Black because there's, of course, the famous scene where where Brad Pitt wanders into traffic and just gets annihilated by every car in the entire city. <laughs> I, that, um, that's one of my favorite that's scenes. That's so over-the-top goofy that I, to this day, don't know yeah, what they, they were going for. But that movie has a lot of weird moments. That, that could be its own podcast yeah. episode. It's... Speaking of, I did take one of those weird moments. Uh, let me just play it for you now. I want the the male voice in this scene is Brad Pitt. Uh, Mama, go over to Doctor Lady. Mom, gonna be fine now. Don't leave. Don't leave me. She'll be right back. Mama, Brad will be evil. I not evil, Mama. And what you is then? I from that next place. You waiting here to take us? Like you're the bus driver today? No, man, I on holiday. Brad Pitt, he on holiday. Some spot you pick. Pain, pain, bad, bad. I don't have nothing to do with these things, you know. Make it go away. Doctor lady, make it die away. Not this pain. This pain got through and through me. Make it go away. I can't, sister. You can, mister. Take me to that next place. It's not your time now. Make it time. You can't fool the way things got to be. Please. So, uh... So hard to explain yes. what's going on there if you haven't seen the movie, why he suddenly <laughs> switches to that accent. Um, because he's, he's playing death, right? He is. And yeah. he's speaking to a woman so he who knows just, she's dying. She somehow knows he's death. He's the Grim Reaper or whatever. And he right. starts... Because she's from the exotic island. Yeah, and he starts talking in that, in that accent, which, I mean, they're speaking English. He could just... Because he doesn't talk like the rest of the time. So it's... Uh, 
again, they're trying to make it. Yeah, they could do like a Jabba the Hutt thing where she speaks Patois and he talks regular. But also there's not a real reason for it to happen other than just to show that, oh, this guy can speak any dialect. Uh, I think it's funny just because they like leave him with her. Like the daughter is there with the sick mother and the nurse takes the daughter away and leaves her with this strange man who has no business being in the hospital who just like walked up to her and just started doing this crazy Jamaican accent. And they're like, okay, you li- come here, daughter, leave your mother, leave your sick mother with this crazy man. Also at no point did she assume he was making fun of her. Yes. <laughs> I think, I think it's there for a cinematic purpose in that it's a little jarring to just have a character uh, like just get hit by three cars at the same time. Right. Uh, I think they really need to earn like that as a fate. And I think maybe that's what that was. That's smart. Yeah. Earning the, uh, earning the time he gets ping pong balled by a trio. They call it Chekhov's Patois accent. Uh, So I do have a bonus entry that I can talk about. If we've already run too long, we don't have to do it. Um, We'll put it behind the scenes. The, the entire movie Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> the entire movie. Uh, where it's about <laughs> how serious people all get addicted to drugs in, in similar ways, and then they each mm-hmm. crash and burn at the end and suffer. It is the most over-the-top reefer madness ass. Like, one guy gets addicted to heroin, and so his arm gets infected, and they have to sever his arm. They have to amputate his arm, so that's his punishment. And, like, an old lady gets addicted to pills, and then I think she dies, and then Jennifer Connelly's character gets addicted to drugs and has to do sex work, and so she has to do an ass-to-ass uh, double dildo scene. Yeah. And it's of it's all set to this this like montage of like it's just the misery porn of like this is what happens when you do drugs. It's yeah. and one guy's like goes to buy drugs, and the drug dealer just pulls out a machine gun and starts mowing down all of his customers because that's what happens when you try to buy drugs. You just get shot with a machine gun. The guy just like because they're just all evil. They just like day. to shoot people. That's that's how people die in drug related incidents. Uh, the whole thing again. If you were trying to make a comedy making fun of like drug scare movies, I think it would play exactly the same way. And I have never run into yeah. anyone who shares that opinion. I might share that opinion. I, I only really remember the ass to ass, but I, I do sort of remember it, like not resonating with me at all. People said it was a good movie, and I remember just leaving thinking, I don't think any of those people were right. But I guess I never, I never gave it much thought. I just remember admiring how committed the guy who says ass to ass mm-hmm. was. Like there was, there was no holding back in that man. He gave that, he gave that one line everything he had. I bet it's because a lot of people are not into it. And so you like you have to have a lot of enthusiasm to get the crowd pumped, you know. Like if you're like, "Hey guys, oh, do we you like think, this? You think maybe we should put one end in the butt and then the other end in a different butt?" And people are like, "Why? Why would we do that? <laughs> Who is getting anything out of that?" But if you're like, "Hey fellas, here it's time, ass to ass," and you're like, "Whoa, there must really be something to this ass to ass thing." Fine, I'm on board. Let's like, do it. Fire it up. I just like thinking. That had had kind of an all-star cast doing what they thought was their very serious, right. you know, Oscar-ready roles. And uh, do you remember a single line other than no. ass to ass from that no. movie? Nope. So that guy, who who was not a notable actor in any way, stole that entire movie from them <laughs> by screaming ass to ass. He won supporting, a Best Supporting Actor that year. 
<laughs> one line and delivered it so well. Also, I wonder how many takes they did, how many different ways they had him do it, and before he finally <laughs> nailed it, because we can all hear his inflection. Can you do it uh, like James Lipton? <laughs> ass? To ass, at last! Jason, 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 Jason. Jason thinks it's funny when a school shooting happens. Jason thinks it's funny when a school shooting happens. It's Hot Dog Junction, America's last comedy, children's variety, trivia, hee-haw laughing for Christ. Now here's Robin Markey. Thanks, Yodel and Julius. I'm Rob, and my friend Marky here wants to tell you all about the supremest cat this side of Job 410. Take it away, Marky. Aaron Crofton. Adrian H. Aaron Alpha Size Alpha Size Alpha. Alpha Scientist Java? Yeah! On Andy! On Donovo! It's Benjamin Cyranin! Uh-huh! Garla! Ryan Sailor, Marito, Cyril, Chase, Clementine Danger, Clementine Danger, Clementine Danger, yeah, that's Clementine Danger, Frank Lamoy, Clarence, Tanting, Darren the Rock Supreme, David Shaw, Dean Costello, Griffin. Dusty's Red Turtle, Eric Rion, Everything, Fancy Shark, Thumbly, I'm doing really good, Barrett, Jellaho, Greg Cunningham, Hamron, Harappa, Fire-Hagliver, 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 Uh, Harvey Penguini. Oh, uh, Harvey Penguini. Hot fart! 
Hulk. I know I'm gonna get this one. Jaber L ate it. Yeah, okay. She's Lloyd. Jeff Arasky. Jeff Salter. John Dean. John McCann. John Inca. Joseph Charles. Josh Piss. Josh Walgreens. Ken Faisley. Kingdom. Hey, Audi Kit Lisa. And Johnny Shuffle. Johnny Shuffle. That's good enough. Matt Riley. Matt Riley. Matt Riley. Matt Riley. Matt Styles. Those are really hard. Okay, just close and swagger. Love you. Indeed. Neil Bailey. Neil Schaefer. Nickel 104. Nick Wilson. Ozzy Bolden. Patrick Hurts. Patrick Hurts. Patrick Hurts. Yeah, I know. Everybody knows I'm trying to say Hurts, okay? Rachel. Rhiannon. Sparkowski. Sean Chase. Scotty Reception. Silverdot. Brandon. Edith. Cash Cashoft. Cash. Thomas Cashoft. I can't. Don't, 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 don't you say a word. I got this. Thomas Cashoft. Thomas, all right. Thomas Kavatsos. Okay. Charlie. Tostigal. Charlie G. Leland Russell. Yanis Ioannidis. Yossarian. And last but not least, Vintover. 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 Okay, okay, hold on. I'm going to take it to heart. I'm just gonna do it fast, real fast. Who told you? I'm gonna help. Oh, fuck this, I'm gonna go eat some kids. <laughs>